Good afternoon, church. My name is Pastor Jonathan. Um, I was asked to preach this afternoon on the parable of the sower. Um, but before I do, I would ask that you pray with me. Uh, pray that I wouldn't get in the way of the word and that we would all be good soil for uh, receiving the word of God and we would all leave here more like Jesus and only he can enable us to do that. Um, so before we do anything, would you pray again with me? Uh, Father, I'm a man of, of unclean lips and, and it is a serious thing to, to dare to handle your precious word in service to your chosen people. Um, so would you please hide me behind your word, protect any of us from speaking or hearing or thinking error, and would we all leave more like Jesus to, to the glory of your name. It's in your son's name, amen. Uh, our primary text today is found in Matthew 13, 1 through 23. Would you please turn there? Uh, and if you uh, need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand and our ushers will provide one. And if you do not own a Bible, uh, please take this as our gift to you and read it. I'll give a second in case. And it's a long passage, so buckle up. Sweet. Oh, there's one right here. Awesome. All right, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of God. Let me tell you where we're going at the outset. Um, Jesus' primary warning in this parable is found in verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. Then notice he goes on first to describe a group of people who hearing could no longer hear and seeing could no longer see. And then he describes four types of soil, all representing groups of people who physically heard with their ears, yet all but one did not spiritually understand or receive what they heard. And I, I want us, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to repeat that to a fault. Every group that we're going to look at all heard with their ears, but they were not able to understand or receive it in the sense that mattered for one reason or another. So I think Jesus' primary message to us in this passage is whether you call yourself a Christian or not, take care in how you listen to the word of God. Do not miss what it has for you. With that being said, let's look at each piece of this passage. And before getting into the bulk, which is the soil sower and seeds and what they represent, I think it's necessary to address a threshold issue, which is the parable issue. Um, it's a, it's, we see this in verse 3 to begin with. He, he spoke many things to them in parables. Have you ever just asked yourself, why did he do this? Uh, why did he speak in parables? And, and in Scripture, we see three reasons why Jesus spoke in parables. The first is simply to fulfill prophecy about the Messiah. We see this in Matthew 13, 35, that he spoke in parables, quote, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. He's quoting here the prophecy from Psalm 78, 2. And we see that he did this for many, in many instances. He did something purely for the purpose of fulfilling prophecy because it demonstrates that God's word is always proven true. The second way we see parables used in Scripture is to explain a new or unknown concept to the audience by examining it alongside a familiar or a known concept. And we see him using this way, uh, parables in this way when describing the kingdom of heaven as a treasure hidden in a field or a pearl of great price or in the sermon Pastor Alex gave last week in the parable of the talents. But the third reason is what we see in this passage. And the third purpose of parables is uh, found in verse 11 through 13. Please read along with me again. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And I think many people reading this passage race past this, what is actually said, so I'm going to read it a third time. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is why... I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. So the third reason Jesus uses parables is this, 
so that some who have shut their eyes would not see and some who have shut their ears would not hear. And I know that might be hard to hear, so I'm going to repeat it. The third reason Jesus uses parables is so that some who have shut their eyes would not see and some who have shut their ears would not hear. And I know, like I say, that's, that can be difficult to work through, but please stick with me as we unpack the rest of this passage. He says that in this people, the prophecy of Isaiah will be fulfilled. So let's read the prophecy one more time as well. This is the message that God gave to the prophet Isaiah to give to a rebellious Israel in the Old Testament. You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest... They should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Why did Jesus make this point within the parable of the sower? Have you ever thought about that? Verses one through nine are giving of the parable and verses 18 through 23 are his explanation but he decides to give us this gut punch in the middle. Why? And I think it's for uh, three reasons. First, to warn his audience that the opportunity to repent may not always be there. God tried again and again and again to reach Israel. Then one day he said, enough, through the prophet Isaiah. I think Jesus makes reference to Isaiah's prophecy in order to remind his audience of this. God is under no compulsion to forever offer grace to a people that hate him. If a person or nation says to God enough times, I don't want you, I want my sin, then he may say, I will, I will give that to you. Um, do not presume on God's offer of grace and delay. I think he's reminding his audience and us to repent today for tomorrow. You may not be able to do so. The second reason that Jesus gave this passage before his explanation of the parable is to demonstrate that the gospel that softens some and leads to repentance in some will cause hardening in others. In the time of Isaiah, Israel had said to God again and again and again, we don't love you, we love our sin, we love our idols. And God had told Israel, Isaiah to tell Israel, okay, I will give you what you say you want more than me. So God commanded Isaiah to preach a message to Israel that would further harden already hard hearts, further deafen already deaf ears, further blind already blind eyes. The message through Isaiah was no longer to save them, it was to condemn them. It was no longer to soften them, it was to harden them. This so that when judgment did fall on the nation of Israel in the form of invading foreign armies in the forms of the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, God would be justified. As it is written in Psalm 51, verses three through four, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We'll see this point more fleshed out in the explanation of the first soil. The third reason Jesus introduced the parable with this passage from Isaiah is seen in verse 12 and 13. Let's look at them one more time. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
So the third reason Jesus spoke to them in this way was that some people have loved their sin and rejected the light, and so Jesus, by speaking in parables, is removing what little light such a person has left. And again, I know that's hard, so let me repeat it. Verse 13 would tell us that Jesus, by speaking in parables, is removing what little light such a person has left. And I get that these are emotionally difficult to work through, but if we follow Jesus, we do not flee the hard things of Scripture. We submit to them and believe them. So what are we to do with this? And I I get that this is all an introduction, but what are we to do with this? I think the first, uh, there are two responses to this passage depending on where you are. First, to the one who has been fleeing obedience to God's word or ignoring God's word or who by word or action has said to God, I don't want you, God. I want my relationships or my job or my life like I had it before I heard of you. If one of those descriptions applies to you, take great care. You are rejecting the light of God, and if you continue rejecting it, he may take that light away. The one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you continue down this path, God may give you what you say you want more than him. The second response to this passage, I believe, is one of encouragement. Perhaps you are a Christian who is discouraged because despite how much you share the gospel and word of God with others, you just don't see any re- seem to have any reaction in your community and friends and family. Take heart. This passage would show you that properly applying God's word in any context is always successful simply by its application, not by the reaction it produces. And and let's unpack that. What do I mean? The message Isaiah had been commanded to share with Israel was one that was designed to harden, further harden an already hardened people so that when righteous and deserved judgment came upon Israel in the form of foreign armies and exile, that God's word would be vindicated. Thus, in the end, Isaiah's message glorified God because despite the fact that it created further hardening in an already hardened people, he preached what God told him to preach. Do you see that? It was therefore successful. The preaching and sharing of the gospel is always effective in its ultimate purpose, which is to give glory to God. It will either be effective in that the audience will respond, submit, and obey. In this case, God is glorified in the redemption, salvation, sanctification, and eventual glorification of such people. Or it is effective in that the audience will reject it, scoff, sneer, and rebel against it, and their response to it will condemn them on the last day. And God will be glorified in the justice exacted on those who rebelled against his proclaimed word and dishonored him and rejected him as king and God. And again, I know this is a hard thing to address at the beginning, but I think it emphasizes Jesus' sole command in this passage, which is, he who has ears, let him hear. So with that background and his command in our minds, let's jump into the rest of the passage, the specific pieces, and let's begin with the seed in verses 18 and 19. Uh, Read along with me. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so let's start with the seed. The seed is unambiguously identified as the word of the kingdom. Or in the parallel account in Luke, it's explicitly called the word of God. So this is what we're talking about, the scriptures. It's what you're currently holding in your hand, nothing else. 
It is to be sown any time we share Scripture, whether to ourselves or others. In my youth, I think I had a very narrow view of this parable. I thought it was only meaning a, an initial gospel presentation, but the entirety of God's Word gives life and fruit. And so I believe no longer that this parable is intended to encompass just the first time a person hears the gospel. I think it includes that, but, but after further reflection, I do believe this is intended to encompass any time you are hearing or sowing the Word of God with yourself or others. Let's look at the sower. Uh, Matthew 13, 37 says explicitly, the one that sows the good seed is the son of man. So the ultimate sower is Jesus, but if we call ourselves Christians and followers of Christ, we are to follow his example in all things. And so when we share the word of God with ourselves or others, we also are being sowers. That being the case, let me ask you, does the sower create the seed in this parable? Is he re-engineering it or repackaging it for each type of soil, or does he just sow it? throw it. He's just throwing it everywhere. Many who preach the word, whether it's from a pulpit or in their day-to-day -day lives, are attempting to read into the word something they want to find. It may be that they think there is something helpful in the culture or their own minds that is more valuable to share than the word of God by itself. This is dangerous thinking. Brothers and sisters, we're not to repackage the seed or make a new one Rather, we are to take the, the, what God has given to us and sow it in ourselves and others everywhere in our daily lives as it is, believing that it is sufficient in and of itself to accomplish all that God has purposed for it, not create something new or exciting in an effort to be relevant or approved by men. But neither the seed nor the sower is the real focus of the parable. The real focus of the parable is on the four types of soil, so let's start looking at those, and let's begin with the first soil. Would you read with me in verse 19? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Let's focus first on the word path. If you've ever been hiking, um, do you recall what was unique about the walking path? It was hardened ground. So many had tread on it that it had become packed down to be denser than the surrounding ground. So the soil here that we're thinking of is a hardened ground. The seed, therefore, does not penetrate because uh, it just sits, remains on the surface where eventually it's removed entirely by the enemy. But again, I'll focus on the word heard. The word of God is heard, explicitly it says, is heard physically, but the text says not understood. Does this mean it was not understood due to intellectual capacity on the part of the hearer? Of course not. We see many times in Scripture that the wisdom of man is very not like the wisdom of God. Rather, it was not understood due to the hardness of heart of the listener. And we see this uh, in an, ex an example of such person in Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And it'll be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." These Pharisees heard the word of God. They physically heard it. 
they could probably recite the whole Torah from memory. Their problem was not physical deafness nor intellectual capacity, but a hardness of heart. They did not believe that the Word of God held anything else for them, though they had studied it their entire lives. Therefore, they had become so blind, so stupid, that for all their learning and knowledge of the law, they were hardened, and they couldn't see even the Son of God as He stood before them, preaching to their face. Indeed, they didn't just fail to understand, but it eventually produced in them such hatred and rage and bitterness that these very people would lead the mob in crucifying our Lord on a cross. It's no accident that the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. Brokenness and humility are the first steps to understanding the truth of the gospel. And they are necessary as you continue to mature in your faith. When Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, he's not suggesting that there are any perfect people. For Romans 3.10 would tell us that none are righteous, no, not one. So what Jesus is saying here is that there are sick people who know they are sick and sick people who don't know it or won't acknowledge it. And the danger is that if you think you are sick, if you don't think you are sick, if you don't acknowledge your illness, you won't seek help. This is the hardening described in this passage. And there are two common ways that this hardening can come about. The first, as we see in the case of the Pharisees, is because a group of people believe they have received all they can from the Word. They are experts. They're the righteous. The, the Word has nothing left for me. Uh, the second way this hardening comes about is when people love their sin and when they hear in the gospel of the self-denial and obedience necessary to follow Christ, they hate it. And out of an overriding love of their sin, they will suppress the evidence they see in their life of the destructive nature of their sin or the truth of the gospel. We see this type of person described in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness focus on this, suppress the truth. This type of heart sees the truth, but they love their sins. They, they love their life as it is and don't like the disruption that the self-denial of a Christ-following life would require. They suppress the truth. They are not open to receiving the wisdom of God. And as a result, the, su the suppression of this uh, is seen in, in verses 21 and 23 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see the parallels between the description of Romans 1 and our main passage? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And in our main passage, it says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. At this point, you might say, Jonathan, Jesus wouldn't do that. He would never give anyone over like this. Beloved, the grace of God is not compelled he offers so much patience and grace. But if you continue to reject or delay, then the opportunity may be lost to you. If you keep saying, God, I love my sin more than you, then there may come a day when God says, okay, if you say so, I'll give you what you say you love most. And we see this confirmed in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, which will be on the screen. Please read with me. They refused to love the truth 
and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Beloved, if you continue to love your sin more than God, then someday God may say, okay, I will give it to you. I will give you what you say you love more than me. This is the hardened ground. This is the hard surface that the gospel sits on and does not penetrate, and eventually the seed is taken away. Thus we see God's word proven true that, quote, even what he has will be taken away. That's horrifying. What do you do to, to do to guard against this? I think there are two types of people who need to consider if this is describing them. The first people who would say this are Christians. They've sat in pews for a long time, but coming to a sermon is more of a cultural routine than it is coming to be fed by the Word of God. This person comes to a service thinking, oh, I know this parable. I've heard it a few times. There's nothing left that this particular Word of God has for me. Aren't you being the same as the Pharisee in that moment? You think yourself already complete and therefore there's nothing left for the Word to work in you? Haven't you already immunized yourself against any sort of work the Word could do in you today? The Word of God, all of it, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Are you complete yet? Then the Word of God has something for you. There isn't a single day that you or I draw breath that the Word could not be usefully, beneficially applied to our lives to love Jesus more, to love your neighbors more, in fighting sin more, in making disciples. So examine yourself when you approach the Word. Believe the Word can accomplish all that it says it can. Take steps to prepare your heart prior to receiving the Word. And, and I'm not talking about your favorite cigar or most comfy chair. I'm talking about a posture of humility in which you desire to receive what the Word has for you that day, even if it's uncomfortable or challenging. So again, when Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, he was not saying there's anyone who is healthy, but there are only those sick who recognize their need for Jesus and those sick who don't recognize it. To those who ignore his word and refuse to recognize it, he says in John 8, 24, you will die in your sins. Let me repeat that. To those who do not believe themselves to be sick and therefore do not believe they need Jesus to save them, to that person, Jesus says, you will die in your sins. And that leads us to the third type of person I think this first soil is intended to warn. It's the person who hears the word of God and it causes their hackles to rise. Just now when I read from John 8, 24 that Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin, how'd that go for you? Or when I read from our main text, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. How'd that go? Was that hard to hear? Do these passages or others make you angry or indignant? How do you do with the pieces of the word of God that you don't like? And, and we could say that differently. What bends, what hardens? Do you bend your thoughts to submit to the word of God or do you bend the word to submit to your thoughts? Because those are really the only two options available to you when you hear something you don't like in Scripture. In option one, you will acknowledge your sickness of sin and be softened and molded by Scripture, knowing that it has a cure you can't create on your own. 
Or in option two, you will not acknowledge your sickness of sin and you will therefore say, why should I bend to this? I have nothing in me that needs to change. None can claim to be a master over me. You will harden and try to bend the word to fit your so-called wisdom or your so-called truth. Listen to me very carefully. If this second category is you, the word of God will be a stench in your nostrils. And if you don't already, you will grow to hate it. And we know this to be true from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, and it will be on the screen. You can read with me. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Hear this, the word of God will be an aroma to everyone. To the one who is humble and poor of spirit, it is a fragrance of life from life to life and to the one who is hardened and thinks themselves sufficient apart from Christ or his continuing work in them, it is a fragrance from death to death. It will eventually be a stench in their nostrils. So before moving on to the next type of soil, let me beg you, if this is you, if the word causes your hackles to rise or is an annoyance to you, you are in a dangerous position and I would beg you to repent. Beg God to show further mercy to you. Beg him to make you love him like you ought. Beg him to take out of you your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. Beg him before it is too late, lest the gospel rest on the cold, hard-packed ground of your heart and the evil one snatch it away before you act. Let's look at the second type of soil in verses five and six. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. And again, I would point out that phrase, they heard the word. Each of these types of people have heard the word in the physical sense, but not in the sense that matters. The second type of soil Jesus calls rocky and shallow soil. And let's read Jesus' explanation in verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Please notice one very important point before we get into the specific wording. This soil can only describe those who would mistakenly believe themselves to be Christian. Let me repeat that. This soil can only describe those who would mistakenly call themselves Christians. And again, I would urge you to hear the words of Jesus when he said, he who has ears, let him hear. If you call yourself a Christian and believe this parable has no meaning or application left, then think on this, that Jesus created a specific category within it to warn those who are mistakenly believing themselves to be Christians. Let's return to the wording and focus with me on the phrase, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So the way we know there is no root the way the lack of root is exposed 
is there is times and circumstances that bring trial, and during that time of trial, the obedience, submission, and self-denial of following Jesus causes the person discomfort, pain, or difficulty, and at some point, this person who was originally very, very excited says, never mind, this isn't worth it. And then there's a falling away. The trial is what reveals there to be no true root. But notice before this falling away, there's an immediate reception with joy. So so there's a type of excitement, a type of emotional high, a type of superficial enthusiasm that precedes this. Perhaps you saw a friend be baptized or you were at camp or a retreat and you got caught up in the excitement you saw all, all around you. This is not to disparage spontaneous conversions. It is to say that we should question whether or not We should ask questions when there is an, quote, immediate reception with joy, for it may be that there is no root there. Contrast this to the first soil, where there was a hardening, a hardness in the here. There was too much resistance. Here there is no resistance at all. There is no counting of the cost of discipleship. What's the problem with that? Well, that's not how Jesus said we are to do this. Jesus taught that before claiming to be a disciple of Christ, a person should consider the cost Please look with me at Luke 14, verses 25 through 30, and it will be on the screen. I'm sorry to rush through this. It's just there's a lot here. Uh, Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. When you preach the gospel, do you encourage the person to count the cost like Jesus did? And if not, why not? Think about that. Why, why not? Why aren't you? J.C. Ryle said it very well when he said, it costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice, follow Christ, believe in Christ, and confess Christ requires much self-denial. I think... A lot of Christians in America have forgotten this or never knew it. And the bottom line is that many Christians and even churches have so watered down the gospel that we would never respond like Jesus did in this passage in Luke. In our effort to make the gospel so accessible, we neglect to share the whole picture of following Jesus. That picture includes being a slave to a master, a servant to a Lord, That means obedience and submission and self-denial in service to him is an undeniable, inescapable part of it. Is there patience, grace, forgiveness, redemption, glory, joy? Of course. But if we only focus on those things and not also on the sin that made such grace, forgiveness, and redemption necessary, and the fact that Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands, then you've only preached half the gospel. Let us not preach half of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus commanded that when you preach the gospel, to also let there be a counting of the cost of discipleship. 
I think some of us don't preach the whole gospel because we feel the person we are talking to will leave. I get that. Jesus knew that would happen, and he did it anyway. In John 6, verses 35 through 60, a great crowd was seeking him out and following him and said with their mouths, we want to follow you. And he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And almost the whole crowd left. Do you think Jesus was surprised by that? And even the disciples who stayed, they said, this is a hard saying. And it breaks my heart to think that there are thousands of churchgoers and pastors And if they had a huge crowd following them, they would temper their words. They would edit the gospel. They would would say, just raise a hand, repeat after me, sign this card, now you're a disciple, and never mention the cost. The cost of discipleship. You're not following Jesus' example if you don't tell people the cost. But part of the good news of the gospel is you can renounce everything you have and you've still gained infinitely more. Initially, it might seem like it costs everything to follow Jesus, but as you grow in knowledge of God, then you'll find that you were willing, that though you were willing to lose everything in order to follow Jesus, that it was actually nothing by comparison to what you've gained. Full access to the perfect Father, adoption by the sovereign King, fullness of joy. I think there are others who might hear how Jesus told people to count the cost. And it caused some to leave. And they will say, Jonathan, I'm not going to do that. I desire to make the gospel as easy and as accessible as possible. And I may be wrong, but at least they will be Christian. And the point of this passage is that they won't be. The point of this passage is that this soil describes people who are not Christian, but will mistakenly believe they are. And we know they never were because 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This is the horror of the second soil. The only people it can apply to are those who mistakenly believe themselves to be Christians. They just haven't been subjected to the sun of trial yet. And once that sun comes... Once the heat hits, it will be revealed that there was no root. These are dead people walking around in churches waiting for trial to expose them as dead people and they don't even know it. And if you don't make them aware of the self-denial which is necessary as a follower of Christ, when you share the word with them, then the trial and tribulation of this life will And it may be that in the intervening period between when you preached the watered-down gospel to them and when the sun exposes their lack of root, that you have effectively immunized them to the truth of the gospel because you desired to make it more accessible and comfortable. Practical thoughts on this last soil. Um, Jonathan, you may ask, how do I know I'm not the shallow soil? What am I to do prior to the day of trouble to know if this is me? I don't want to wait till then for it to be exposed that I have no roots. What practically can I do now? In order to determine that, we must revisit what Jesus did in the two passages we've talked about. In John 6, Jesus presented the crowd with a hard passage. We know it was hard because the disciples that stuck around said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So my first question to you is this, when, how do you do when confronted with the hard things of Scripture? When passages call out your pet sin, do you ignore those? When Scripture conflicts with the wisdom of your favorite motivational speaker or politician, what do you go with? 
When Scripture challenges your own privately created view of God, which you've built off the world's definitions of manhood or womanhood or love or justice, do you submit to the truth of Scripture or do you demand that Scripture bend so it is more comfortable to you? The second thing Jesus did to test for roots we see in Luke 14. There Jesus commanded those who would follow him to count the cost. And he concluded his argument in verse 33 of Luke 14 with these words, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's not saying we're to be ascetics or take vows of poverty. What he's saying is to examine if you value anything in your life, even good gifts like community, your mind, your body, your talents, your job, or even family, friends, or ministry. Examine if you value anything more than God such that if he said to you, I need you to lay that down for a while for the sake of the gospel, would you? Would you? Brothers and sisters, if through this exercise you find that there are things in your life that you would not give up if Jesus commanded it, then I would urge you, repent. Again, I would say, ask Jesus, help me love you like I ought. Ask him, Lord, I don't always like what I read in your scripture, but help me to always submit my mind to your word and not the other way around. Also, when you approach the word of God, whether it's in your quiet time or a sermon, pray for yourself. Pray, God, make me good soil. Give me roots today. Correct me today. Deepen my love for you today. Open my mind to you today so that when the day of trial comes, when the scorching sun is on me, it will be discovered that I have roots in the surpassing joy of knowing and following you, and I'll be able to stand. Okay, third soil, the thorny soil. Here's the initial description. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And here is Jesus' explanation. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is, this is identifying distractions. The person is more open, this person is more open than those in the first category. Uh, they have more depth than those in the second category, but the problem is there are many things competing with God's word for this person's attention. And notice these competing things can be both positive and negative. The, the text says the cares of the world. I, I think this could be stress and anxiety, uh, but also there is seemingly positive things like wealth and productivity. And I want you to focus on both types of things can take attention and focus from God and his word such that there's no lasting growth and fruit. Because this person is more concerned with the things of the world, they will give God only leftovers. Um, this person intentionally or unintentionally leaves God with scraps of time, leftover love, spare attention, and this is sin. You should know, this is sin. And it leads to destruction. This type of person is not hardened like the first soil, nor excitedly yet superficially accepting like the second soil. This person hears the word and gives attention to the things of God, but only so long as it is convenient. Only so long as it doesn't get in the way of their true desires. Community, riches, family, etc. They will obey God's commands so long as it doesn't cost too much. Doesn't distract them from the more important things. And when the weeds of worldliness multiply, when there is seemingly too much going on and they have to cut something out, the word of God and pursuing God zealously is on that cut out list to make room for the practical things, the greater things. 
one commentator uh, on this passage described this person this way. He does not notice his deceiving worldliness chokes the word because his attention is on his riches, possession, prestige, position, and other things of the world. He is not even aware that he has lost what knowledge of the word he once had or that his spiritual life is totally unfruitful because he has no real interest in such things. And that's the tragedy of the third soil. Eventually, it reveals that the person had no true interest in the things of God. They would pursue God only so long as that pursuit did not hinder or take too much away from their other worldly concerns. In college, I had a friend, and we tried on multiple occasions to meet, and I kept canceling, and he eventually made a very simple comment that rebuked me, and I think of it to this day and believe it to be true. He said, you make time for what's important to you. And that's not complex, but it is very true. Uh, the fact is there is too much in this life. You will be forced to make sacrifices and give up some things to chase other things, even good things. Therefore, focus with me on this. Much of life is not a choice between obviously evil things and obviously good things. Sometimes it is. But most of the time, the choice that you and I will face is between something that appears good and valuable and something else that appears good and valuable. But one of them is more so. We see this to be true in the account of Martha and Mary. Martha was concerned with many acts of service while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching. Martha asked Jesus to rebuke Mary and order her to stop listening to Jesus and to help Martha. And listen to his response in Luke 10, 41 and 42. It'll be on the screen. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Notice Jesus didn't say what Martha was doing was not important or valuable or good. But he noted that one thing is necessary. One thing was greater still. And Mary, by sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing his teaching, had found it. And Jesus said, this is far greater than Martha's good service. So what practically can we do to guard against these thorns? Again, engage in a thought exercise with me. Each of you have dozens, if not hundreds, of tasks each day and week and many times each day you make choices. You say, I will give up this in order to pursue that. I will read for an hour, but I would like to call this person. Do I spend time with my friends or go to the gym? Do I paint this wall or play with my kids? You do this process every single day, frequently without thinking. So in this ongoing negotiation with yourself, where does seeking the Lord fit in? Is it non-negotiable? Do you see... Um, just like in Martha's example, none of these things are evil. None of these things are evil. Um, in fact, they're all good things. But just like with Israel, we are so prone to turn good things into God things and turn gifts from our Father into idols that will replace Him. And the proper place of all of these things is under our daily pursuit to be satisfied in Christ and therefore, all of these things will need to be subjected to that goal at one point or another. And are you willing to do that? Let me, uh, let me give two practical steps that we can take to ensure we are not choked by weeds as we finish with this soil. Um, first, ask yourself, is there anything in your life that if I was told it's necessary for you to not spend so much time on that or even give it up in, in order to pursue Christ more, to spend time with him, even if it's a really good thing, community, friends, hobbies, etc., would you? 
And if the answer is no, repent. Recognize you've gotten your values messed up and pray for right thinking. Pray again, God, help me love you like I ought. Help me value your word rightly. Help me rebalance my life so that I'm spending more time pursuing you. And the second practical step is pruning of distractions. And, and this should be a normative part of the Christian life. Please read along with me in Hebrews 12.1. It'll be on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This should be something we strive to do every day. Not just remove obvious sin, but this passage would say, lay aside those things which are merely weights, things which slow our race to follow after Jesus. I had to do this in a serious way recently when I discovered I was spending too much time consuming new news media in the morning. It was causing me to start my days with anxiety and fear and despair. And so in obedience to God's command in this passage, I found I had to stop and replace it with something, anything that would point me to Christ at the beginning of my day. Um, so let's look at the last soil, the prepared soil, the fruitful soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. There are two primary things I want to focus on here. First, what is the result of the seed truly taking root? What is the evidence that there is truly new life and new birth? Fruit. Jesus affirms this principle so clearly as he concludes his Sermon on the Mount. Please read along with me in Matthew 7, 16 through 21, which will also be on the screen. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you call yourself a disciple of Christ, you are on this earth to produce fruit for the kingdom, to make disciples, to share good news, to obey and be imitators of Christ in everything. And if you aren't doing these things, if you tend to consume more than you produce for the kingdom, if you're constantly making excuses as to why there's no growth in your relationship with Jesus, you should examine if you are good soil and if the seed of the gospel has ever truly taken root in you. I know that's hard to think through, but Scripture makes clear that the most consistent and clear evidence of new birth in a person's life is the fruit they produce. For some, this should encourage you. Uh, this passage is one of those places in Scripture that makes clear that the mark of genuineness is not a subjective feeling or a memory. It's not an emotional experience you had at a camp or a Bible study 10 years ago. The indicator of new life is not any of those things, it's fruit. And I say that to encourage some of you because I hear people express worry that they can't remember the exact moment they were saved 15 years ago. Beloved, look at your life now. Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? 
The presence of such things is a far more sure indicator of belonging to Christ than if you can remember raising your hand or walking an aisle 15 years ago. And also I want to encourage you with this. Notice that this last soil it produces, it creates more than it consumes such that the loss of one seed in producing produces a multiple of growth. And I'm very thankful for this church because we have many people here who desire to be producers in God's kingdom rather than consumers. I think this is also indicative of real spiritual growth in this parable. You desire to add to God's kingdom more than you take from it. In thousands of churches today, many people in pews are saying, what can you give me today besides the word of God? More comfortable seating, more kids programs, community to entertain and comfort me when I'm sad, better music to lighten my mood. And when the consumer believes one of these things is starting to fall off, they leave. But as I've said, I see very little of that attitude here. And I, I primarily see people who desire to contribute to the church more than they consume. And so I, I thank God for you. I truly, truly do. Thank you. And the last point we should take away from this last soil is found in verse 23. Please read with me. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. Again, I'm going to repeat. Each of these previous types of soil have heard. They've, they physically heard but it was a physical type of hearing only. There was no spiritual hearing or understanding. It stopped at their ears. We've seen that the understanding of this last soil is not due to innate intellect or a personal righteousness apart from Christ's imputed righteousness. So why does this fourth soil hear the word and can understand it? And I believe that the principle we are to take away is that this soil was prepared to receive the seed. Let me repeat that. I believe the principle we are to take away is that this soil was prepared to receive the seed. If you've ever tried to grow something, you pull weeds, you add soil and nutrients, you till the soil to break up hardened surfaces all prior to planting, that is what I think we are called to. Initially, all preparation is done by the Spirit. All preparations done by the Spirit. But to the extent we are subsequently enabled by the Spirit, we are commanded to cooperate in this preparation. That's why Jesus says, let him who has ears, let him hear. That's also why Hebrews 12.1 would tell us to cast off all that hinders. So my ultimate plea for you and myself is that we would prepare our hearts to be good soil, whether we hear the word of God and whether it's the 10th time or the 10 millionth time. So in our final moments, I want to talk about what practically can you do to prepare yourself in this way. First, if you call yourself a Christian, then I would ask you to examine yourself for hardness. When you come to the text of a sermon, do you believe there is nothing for you? Do you say, I've already squeezed all the good that there is to be had from this? Be on guard. I promise you, you haven't. There's not a day in your life that you've loved and valued Jesus like you ought, that you've obeyed to the degree you ought. And the only way we can continue to run to him is through beholding him in his word and obeying him. I promise you that, that none of us have exhausted scripture's ability to display God to us in a way that will change us. Second, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, have you ever counted the costs of discipleship? And if not, would you? Would you consider the words of Jesus that you should count the cost of discipleship and following after him? You will be hated by this world. You will suffer, and that should actually encourage you. 
For Romans 8.17 says that you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Third, examine whether you have roots or not. Have you ever suffered a crisis of faith? Perhaps you are in a situation where you know that if you embraced Christ fully that your best friend would hate you or, or something, a similar effect. Does that, what does that cause you to do? Does it cause you to spec, step back from Jesus? Examine whether your only positive thought of God is that time at camp 10 years ago or those months when you visited that perfect church with that perfect community group. Beloved, if, if that is the only time you can recall affection for God or value for God, then you must consider whether or not you were experiencing merely an emotional high. And if that is the case, then I invite you right now to discover the depths of God's love for it is deep. Fourth, have you ever taken stock of the weeds that are competing for your attention? If the day came to pass that your hobby, your friends, your family required that you give the bulk of your time and attention to them instead of your pursuit of Christ, what would you choose? And on the subject of, of weeds, if there are many sources of distraction, stress, or anxiety in your life, consider removing some of them. That might look like removing apps from your phone or taking a break from a particular form of news or, or entertainment. Overarchingly, part of the wisdom for each of these suggestions is to pray. Pray, God, give me wisdom to prepare myself to receive the full benefit of your word every time it is given. God, make me good soil. Take away distraction. Humble me that I may be softened to receive your word. God, would you make every spiritual fruit abound in me for the glory of your name. Help me obey whatever I find in your word, even if it's the first time I'm seeing it. And if you're hearing me today and you would not call yourself a Christian, then my advice to you is repent. Repent now. Don't, don't tarry. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Do not let the seed of the word rest atop hardened ground any longer, lest you look away and find it gone. The enemy is real, and he might snatch it before you get in your car to leave today. Bend the knee to Jesus now so that you may do so as an adopted son or daughter, or bend it on the last day by force of his divine might as a subjugated rebel. And on that day, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. He who has ears, let him hear today and be saved. Let's pray. Father, please let us be good soil for the, the planting of your word. It doesn't matter what, don't let any of it be for me or, or thoughts of men or this culture. None of those produces life. What produces life is the word of God. Please help us. Help us to have ears. Help us to hear with those ears and understand and let it bring forth fruit. Thank you for your work that you've done in this people and your church and are continuing to do. Let us submit and not harden. Let us be the one that bends and not seek to bend your word and let there be life in each of us and for this city. We love you. Forgive us where we failed you. It's in your son's name. Amen.